0: This is the 3D Pod, your number one
1: source for 3D printing news, analysis, and insight from
2: 3dprint.com. Now, here are your hosts, Joris Peels and Maxwell Vogue. Hello,
1: everyone. Uh, My name is Joris Peels, and this is another episode of the 3D Pod. And as always, I'm here with Maxwell Vogue. How are you doing, Max? I'm good. How are you doing, Joris? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Are are you, are you excited about what we're going to be talking about today?
0: I'm excited to explore the depths of micro 3D printing.
1: Yeah, micro-theory printing. Okay, that okay. <laughs>
0: am I screwing up the name? <laughs> no,
1: no, no, well, we can talk about that. I mean, I think the, the cool thing is we are talking today with Ian Gibson, and he's a professor of design engineering, so that's broad, right? Right. <laughs> and he's written over, well, he's co-authored so, and also been on 240 papers. He's been doing this for quite a while. So uh, with Ian, we can talk about most 3D printing. <laughs> um, so he's, he's also written a textbook uh, out of manufacturing technology, I think with Brent Stucker and some other people, and uh, that's been read by about a million uh, students or used by a million students. So generally, um, you know, and now he's at the University of Twente, and uh, he's uh, in the Netherlands. Uh, and he's also, also the scientific director of the Fraunhofer Project Center there, uh, which actually Fraunhofer is like the German National Research Institute. It's kind of like Oak Ridge or something like that, kind of. And uh, they have a bunch of them. And uh, so they have a, an institute in Twente, uh, which is uh, does a lot of stuff, uh, cutting-edge manufacturing. We can talk about pretty much everything, more like things like concrete and metals. and But uh, yeah, I think we, with Ian, we can talk about pretty much everything. Welcome to the show, Ian.
2: Thank you. It's uh, great to be here.
1: So first off, like I think first we need to talk a little bit about, what's this, this Fraunhofer Project Center thing at the University of Twente?
2: Okay, so you're, you're quite right in uh, describing the Fraunhofer uh, Gesellschaft as, as being a, a German-sourced um, organization. Um, but in the last sort of, uh, I guess, 15 years or so, uh, there have been Fraunhofer Institutes uh, sort of springing up all around the world. And in fact, there's a few in America and uh, probably about uh, maybe 20 or so um, outside of Germany. Uh, we're the first one in the Netherlands, and um, we've been active for about three, four years. So we're relatively new and still uh, still, still finding our way. Um, we have a connection with the Institute for Production Technology, which is in Aachen in Germany, and uh, uh, they, they're helping us to sort of guiding us through the process, if you like.
1: And and what, what kind of things? So one of the things you do is you help companies develop technologies, and then what's your specialist areas there? Are uh, that's on?
2: that's correct. Um, we deal with what is labelled as high TRL uh, technology readiness level um, uh, sort of activities. So um, it, it's really about technology transfer. So additive manufacturing is part of that, as you know, it's becoming more and more industrialized, and so we are looking to help companies um, incorporate the technology into uh, their practices but um, also because it's part of uh, you know generally process of manufacturing um, you uh, you you we're looking at all aspects really of advanced manufacturing and trying to um, increase the level of uh, manufacturing awareness and technology uh, readiness uh, in the region from start to finish, I assume, from... Yeah, that's right. So production. we deal, yeah, absolutely. We deal with design um, all the way through to uh, validation of the whole process. So we also look at um, training of people on these new uh, technologies, how they might adjust their you know, process flow, how they might uh, change their business models um, to uh, take advantage of all of these new technologies
0: what are you finding the most useful way to help people kind of get over that initial bump to start using additive manufacturing even in the in the early stages of just prototyping i feel there's still resistance sometimes
2: uh, yeah I, I, absolutely so we, we we tend to sort of um, use it as a or, or describe it as a, a tool that goes along with a lot of other tools, if you like, um, mm. to help you solve solve your problems. So it's not just about additive manufacturing, it's about helping you to uh, somehow upgrade your manufacturing capabilities. Um, so the first uh, discussion is really about something like, say, Industry 4.0, rather than additive manufacturing. So we sort of look at, well, um, how well connected uh, are your manufacturing systems? Um, what other technologies are you currently applying? And then um, can additive manufacturing uh, help you to uh, elevate uh, some of those activities?
1: Are there any new applications that you're particularly excited about? Like things that are happening like, oh, that's, that's significant or that's interesting?
2: Yes and no. I mean, uh, the, the we, we're really looking at, at trying to... Um, encourage industrialization of additive manufacturing so just by you know necessity we're actually looking at technology which is already quite uh, established um and uh, what's happening therefore is is that they are um you know uh, making these machines more and more uh industry ready if you like so uh, they're more reliable or they um uh, they're 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 easier to use uh, or faster or whatever. So so we don't really look at the cutting edge technology in that respect because uh, obviously that still has quite a long way to go before it can be used uh, in in industry, if you like. But having said that, yeah, once we start having these discussions with industry, um, it's quite clear that you can still identify. Uh, gaps, you know, what they would like from such technology that, that currently isn't available. And I suppose one of the ones which um, I'm looking at at the moment is, is multi-material capability, now, particularly in the metal um, uh, segment. So be able to create um, parts which have multifunctionality uh, built within a single machine, maybe with different materials.
1: We talked about that before on the 3D pod with Aerosend. So they're doing that with their variable deposition stuff. I'm also a huge fan of FabriSonic that can also do something like that.
2: Yeah, we we are uh, in fact talking to Arisent, uh as well, um, and um, yeah, I mean there's still quite a long way to go again before it it can be really said that it's it's, it's industry capable. But um, yeah, that, that that's one of the directions we're going. Absolutely, uh, Fabresonic I know about, but uh, I haven't had many dealings with them.
1: Yet. The applications the are very very interesting because it's a very very different way of building up the material. And its potentials so are like super low cost as well.
0: This is not a powder bed right
1: no, no it isn't it's like a its like I don't know it's like loam I guess <laughs> but I'm being mean so if we're looking at, at, at industrialization you know we're, we're looking about like the, the boring clipboard bit but the bit that where the rubber actually meets the road right so what, what are some of the challenges that, that you face then in that area like let's keep stick to metals I guess you know are we seeing a lot of people saying, hey, are the problems on the material side? Are the problems on the post-processing side or just the cost? What are the big hiccups, Are uh, the big blockades?
2: Yeah, I think cost and reliability are probably the two crucial uh, components that most industries are, are looking at. What they want is a machine that obviously is plug and play. And um, for, on a shop floor, uh, that's not that easy to achieve. You know, if you look at, for example, uh, powder bed uh, metal printing, you know, there's issues around, um, you know, contamination of uh, the shop floor with with powders um, or contaminating the machine itself. Um, The ability of that machine to then also um, interface with other equipment around, uh, if you want to have high levels of automation, you maybe want robotics in there as well. Um, so all of these things are, are uh, you know, they, they, they still need to be properly explored because, you know, these, until fairly recently, these machines were were laboratory machines. You know, they were put into a lab and um, were really there for primarily proof of concept, um, proof of principle, uh, prototyping type applications, uh, one-offs and the like. But nowadays, you know, a lot of industry actually are looking at these machines for uh, production volume production even um, and and you know and that's 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 quite difficult to uh, to, to achieve um, in a reliable sense as well you know we now talking about having to in, uh, incorporate um, quality control methods and and the like within um, you know sort of batch based or volume based uh, production uh, so these these are new areas for many of these uh Uh, manufacturers of am technologies
1: so now we're seeing okay first off we're seeing the excitement around velo 3d with a lot of like monitoring and the melt pool and everything that goes on there we're seeing layer cam and other kind of products to to give us imagery or, or of, of what is happening in the printer and then what's ha- so it doesn't you know becomes less of a surprise right uh, less of a box of chocolates kind of a scenario <laughs> uh, that we had previously and so we are seeing a lot of things going on there do, do you think that's like a you know that, that's like a software solution or that's like a you know is that for the OEMs to solve this or is it you know or do we look at, like at some aerospace parts like they make the part you know in the post-processing chain you know so maybe it's something for post-processing equipment
2: that really depends on application. Um, so sometimes, yes, it, it is, it, it is because, you know, you cannot avoid, say for example, uh, finish machining or, or, or you need to do some kind of heat treatment, um, uh, approaches in order to, uh, to get the right, uh, mechanical properties in your parts. Um, but there, there's still a lot to be said about trying to control the process. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the major, I guess, um, uh, developments that uh, we are seeing and will ex- expect to see more of uh, in the near future is the ability to really close loop control uh, the uh, the additive manufacturing process. Now, there's a lot of control in these machines, but it's not controlling around the part that's being built itself, or it, it's only just starting to be. So yeah, uh, melt pool control. Uh, and, and, and monitoring, um, you know, uh, changing the process parameters to suit uh, variations in geometry uh, during the build. These are the things that we should be expecting to see more and more of in the uh, in the near future. Yeah.
1: I'm very excited actually that it goes on. I mean, there's also a big movement now into these multiple laser systems. Everybody's announcing. First off, that's a bit new for our industry because it used to be that a few companies announced but before it was just like when they had the printer on the shop floor where you can actually buy it, that's when it was live, but now it's a bit pre-announcing. Uh, but now everybody's going to nine, 10, 20 lasers, things. What do you think about the, those kind of things? Cause it seems on the one hand I've been thinking about this and it seems like, yes, it's a great productivity enhancer, but on the other hand, you're going to get a lot of these beams crossing each other. You're going to get a lot of these beams heating up parts that are adjacent to other parts and stuff like that. So it's going to be incredibly complex.
2: Absolutely, I agree entirely with that. Um, it, it's it's definitely a way to go because, obviously, as you say, it's about productivity and trying to um, uh, speed up throughput. But yeah, as you make it uh, make the part faster and faster, there's a lot more energy involved in the whole process, and being and that energy is stored within the part itself, and uh, and that's very difficult to model. That's very difficult to um, sustain and, and and keep it at a, a controlled level yeah we, we we've got a long way to go still we we're we're doing some work with um additive industries and um, we we bought one of their machines um about a year or so ago and that's uh a, we uh, specified it with two lasers um and even with two lasers it's an interesting problem to uh, to deal with
1: yeah, it's kind of like this traveling salesman problem, but the, you'll have like beams crossing each other, or residual heat, meaning that the part is going to be higher in temperature than you thought it was. Or, yeah, it's, I don't know.
2: Yeah, just- absolutely, and um, yeah, and, and and also, again, I you know, we're we're, we're mainly talking about um, metal printing here, uh, using powder bed fusion systems, and um, the uh, as I say, the energy that's stored within that, um, you know, you actually want. The, 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 yeah, well, you require the process to also cool down. Don't forget, you know, Um, you, you, you you heat it up, you melt it, and then you want it to cool down and solidify, and then you uh, repeat that process. So, um, yeah, if you, if you put, too much energy it may never cool down and uh, <laughs> that's uh, that's that's not gonna be helpful yeah. either
1: is it or, or rip itself apart or they have to use even more supports which is right which, which uh is
2: yeah supports is really a big issue and i think that yeah, we need we need to really address that too um to right. be able to create parts with in a supportless environment um uh for metal printing in particular um, it, i think it's possible because you know but it requires that uh, closed loop control that you were referring to earlier fundamentally though is
0: is powder bread printing really the way to be doing like an industrial use version of it versus some new thing that has to come out or i can't remember the other guys that you mentioned joris um that aren't using powder but for metal printing because it just seems like there's so much waste involved in a, in a powder bread print
2: uh, great question. Um, I suppose one of the more the obvious ways uh, to counter that would be, say, directed energy deposition systems like um, you know high resolution uh, WAM or something like that. Um, so the, the, there are definitely people thinking in in those directions as well. Yeah, absolutely. The bigger your part gets, uh, the more raw material you need. Um, yeah absolutely there's there's definitely um some research to be done and some development to be done in that space totally agree
1: yeah uh, i think also there's also i, I like laser metal innovations and one click metal it's like they're all um i think one of them's extra X actually and and um they're looking at the the package and saying okay how can we make powder bed fusion cheaper right mm-hmm. Uh, and how can we just look at it from a, stand, okay, we've got a motion stage. We've got so essentially value engineering. I'm not trying to make it look bad, but like, because anything in powder bed is difficult. And I like that fundamentally as well as an approach and saying, like, how can we do it cheaper with optic? How can we do it cheaper with the, the motion stage? How can we really save costs? And I love, for example, Meltio as well, which is just this, like super easy to deploy technology that, that is, that takes away a lot of the dependency on powder, uh, which of course is problematic of fires and exploding and all that stuff and makes it also significantly cheaper. Uh, I really love those technologies. I think, I think, you know, powder bed fusion is is inherently expensive because the only customers that were willing to pay were kind of money, no object customers, like satellite companies and defense and universities. So what what Ian was talking about before, you know, it was like, it was like how many dials can we get on the box, you know, (laughs) for MIT. Right. And, And then MIT would buy one and everyone's happy. Right. And then, that would just adjust everything. So it's a very different thing to then talk to Toyota and say, okay, how many? How what's the yield? Whatever that kind of stuff. But one metal technology I'm not so enthusiastic about is 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 a binder jet. Uh, how, how are you Ian, are you? What do you well, think of bi- binder, binder jet process?
2: <laughs> what like voxel jet and the like, or do you mean? Yeah, like, yeah, like voxel
1: X one a desalt metal a uh, BASF yeah. now, <laughs> or that's bound metal, yeah. but that's Mark Forge that kind of thing. So that's, I, I'm all putting, those are the ones that, okay, you, you, the, it's, they're two different ones, the kind of it's bound metal and then binder jet, but essentially it's the ones where there's separate centering steps to to, to, to get the, 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 the part made, yeah. a green state and
2: not. Yeah, maybe from a production perspective and putting it into manufacturing uh, environment, I, I would agree with you. Um, I mean, one of the benefits around uh, those technologies is the ability to switch materials. Um, so if you're really doing prototyping or uh, you want to have a capability to switch materials then uh, then there's a possibility there you know, we, we did look for example at some um, mark forged uh, for a while because of that but that was really be from a research perspective is to say okay uh, I can uh, basically uh, try solutions with uh, with different metals um, and and see what see what happens there but I agree with you from a manufacturing point of view uh, yeah you you want some more stability uh, in the process and um, yeah quite often you you won't be switching those materials so why bother yeah
1: and then, so if we're, if we're moving, we're, we're talking a lot about metal, but I think I mm. think what interesting is you've also done well one a little question about medical device because you wrote a paper about that recently. We uh, got mm-hmm. sent that, um, and uh, so in medical device, we've got, we've got actually a huge success in the orthopedics, right? Mm-hmm. Huge success, and, and it's 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 being adopted by more and more companies. We're seeing more and more approvals and stuff. Yeah, um, and we saw that this is a really big uphill struggle. They've been trying to do this since when was it like early 2000 or something the, the the first things that it was in australia or something right or i don't remember when it was, but it was really anatomics yeah, yeah yeah those guys yeah and then and then it took them an incredibly long time to get this going and to get everybody interested in this you know do, do you see this medical stuff how do you see this medical stuff generally i mean you're you, uh, how do you see it evolving or how do you see it uh, uh pushing further
2: yeah it, it's been Quite uh, an interesting journey. Uh, I mean, I've been interested in using AM for medical applications ever since it came out. Um, you know, I I've even saw it in the sort of like the early 1990s, um, uh, great applications where people were using um, stereolithography models really just for diagnostic purposes and to help with surgical planning and the like. And and uh, yeah, so are you... You always saw the benefit, and then you 're absolutely right yours what what is it still it 's almost like that even now you know twenty years later twenty plus years later that um, we 're not seeing it as mainstream medical uh, application so uh, there 's obviously something going on um, yeah there's there 's a lot of potential reasons why that it, it 's not um, come on in leaps and bounds um, some of that is related to how the medical industry be, is, is very conservative if you like and uh, not willing to accept these uh, new technologies uh, or wanting a lot of validation in order to uh, before they, they will but, um, but yeah I, 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 I think we're in an exciting period because uh, you, you mentioned yeah it's starting to become pretty much accepted within orthopedics for certain types of applications, um, Stryker have this huge factory over in uh, in Ireland um, making hip implants, and and they are not even customized. You know, they're 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 just oh, they're just be- uh, okay. <laughs> I thought I was assuming they were customized because that would no, be- no. I I mean, uh, there may be uh, some custom capabilities that they are applying now, but they they basically saying, well, additive is the best way to make these things. Uh, it's yeah. as simple as that. It, 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 just cause you're doing of, geometry. That's, uh, exactly. Yeah. Possible. Uh, geometry and the surface finishing and, mm-hmm. uh, the materials and all of that sort of matches the application very well. Um, I would say that the reason why they are doing it is uh, in order to basically make sure that they have all of the in-house knowledge, uh, ready for when it is you know mass customization, if you like or, or customized for uh, individuals personalization really isn't it? Um, so uh, yeah, they, they, that when, when that happens they'll be perfectly positioned to exploit that market as well.
1: I've talked to surgeons by the way that say that it's not needed.
2: Uh, good. For
1: like, for example, yes. a T- TKO or or for, for, for a bunch of these yeah. implants, you just have like five sizes or something, and it's fine.
2: Uh, but correct? It? Yeah, you're right. <laughs> uh, it is true, um, and I've had similar conversations. The application segments uh, are reduced a little bit, so yeah, more likely to be in say facial surgery or maxofacial surgery uh, rather than uh, knees and hips. Mm. Um, there are some applications in the, those areas if the anatomy of the individual or the medical condition is unusual. Um, but you're right that the, the uh, this tried and tested methods and then personalized solutions don't necessarily give you uh, sufficient improvement to, uh, to, to justify going that way. Um, so, you, 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 no, you're right. I agree. As I said,
0: there's always the holy grail of tissue printing and the dream of printing organs. But, you know, I think we're still a ways away from that.
2: Yeah, well, there are some. Uh, I mean, um, non-load-bearing bone solutions, so things like in in cranial implants and things Mm. like that, uh, yeah, they're already being done, essentially, where you do uh, use 3D printing to create your scaffolds and then... um, Uh, you go through a sort of a biochemical approach, you know, seed them with cells and uh, proteins and the like and and get it to regrow. Absolutely.
0: Is the material eventually replaced by the natural materials from the body, essentially?
2: It's just a scaffolding. That's the idea. Yeah, that's the idea.
1: It's (laughs) a PCL we talked about with the yeah
2: Yeah. But the 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 issue then is is yeah you go back to knees and hips and things like that where uh, more obviously strength. you need very high strength materials and that's not currently uh, possible. Uh, but you're right, that's the holy grail, absolutely.
1: Mm-hmm. But and a little bit about manufacturer. Stryker is an example of a company that's saying we own this, we do this, we do the whole value chain. Mm-hmm. Um, there's other companies that are just also uh, implant companies that just outsource it. Mm-hmm. Uh, like Modulus, I think they're called. to the outsource all production to 3D Systems. Do do do? Can you compare and contrast these approach? I always feel that that in that kind of a high value application, where your whole company could just die with one manufacturing error or one design flaw, you know, I would love to own that whole thing. You know, uh, yeah. powder to 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 part. You know, is, is 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 it something to be said for this outsource approach, or what do you what do you feel is a, is a, is, a, is the best way to do that?
2: Well, I, I think the, the area will get greyer and greyer as to what you mean by outsourcing because I, I would imagine that, for example, Stryker, uh, when, they say, when you say they own the whole process, I suspect what we will then see is maybe Striker centers um, located uh, in connection to, say, a number of hospitals in the region and providing uh, that solution. Um, so uh, yeah, and 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 I guess what will happen is it will depend. I mean, Stryker, their facility is aimed at uh, quite a high volume um, uh, turnover. You know, they're making lots of hip implants. Um, but then, if you're talking about somebody that needs a repaired cheekbone, then that is really a highly personalised solution um and uh, and so then you would outsource it to a a, a company that has uh, that capability and is willing to willing to do it for you regardless whichever way you go there's a high degree of certification that needs to take place um and so um you know all of these companies must really uh, um, be uh, properly certified to provide the solutions that you're looking for it's not just uh, going to anybody that has a 3D printer, uh, they, they've really got to have that uh, capability in the uh, in the medical domain and, and prove it as well.
1: well. I think it's interesting there's no bioprinting services, even for uh, like low-level tissue or for really simple things or for scaffolds, uh, just, there's no service anywhere.
0: Are we there yet? Is there enough, like,
1: Oh, it's, it's, probably, it's probably far too early. I mean, yeah. uh, but but I just thought it was interesting that nobody would jump on that, but everyone, yeah. But there's only 150 startups, I think in bioprinting in total. So it's very small.
0: I'm curious. Yeah. And you've been, uh, you've lived all over the world. I see you're once in, in Hong Kong and Singapore and places like that. Are you, do you see a different level of adoption happening in your experience between, you know, the West and the East, so to speak, or, even regionally within that, like is is China embracing additive manufacturing faster than say Europe, where because of labor costs, you might think Europe would embrace it a little faster
2: or do you not even see a difference? Oh, I definitely see differences. It's it's a great question. Um, I mean, mean, I've been to China a lot and um, uh, it's scary the amount of uh, investment uh, that's taking place in in uh, in additive, and um, uh, but then how that relates to results, I, I have less clarity. Um, so if I look, for example, at Europe, yeah, it's a little it's a little clearer. You know, you're basically looking at very high added value and trying to provide solutions which are, um, you know, that 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 are cost effective uh, at that sort of high, uh, high value um, domain. China, as we know, I mean, they, they excel in mass production and being able to create many, many products uh, very, very cheap cheaply. And, um, and, and so uh, how it fits within that framework is an interesting uh, question in itself. Yeah, there's there's a lot of a uh, lot of development in, in the early days. Uh, you know, I mean, I was in Hong Kong in the in the '90s and at the turn of the, the century. There was the general feeling that um, yeah, China had a lot of catching up to do uh, in terms of even just developing the technology and uh, trying to uh, get machines which were as good as the ones that you were getting from Europe and the US. That, that's no longer the case. Yeah, that's uh, not true anymore. <laughs> yeah, uh, the, basically there's, that's not uh, an issue anymore. So now it's a matter of, yeah, well, what do you actually use these machines for? Um, and, uh, and, and what are you benefiting uh, from um, in, in their application? Uh, I guess, you yeah, know, it really depends on which industry you're talking about. Um, for example, I, I, a couple of years ago, when we were still allowed to travel, the uh, I was over in in uh, in Nanjing, and um, yeah, there was a huge amount of aerospace uh, activity using uh, wire arc additive manufacturing to create large titanium pieces bigger than anything I've seen anywhere else in the world. Mm. Um, so uh, yeah, there's a lot of adoption. Um, but then where exactly is that going? I, I, I honestly don't know. It really starts to then boil down to what's the good business model.
0: Right. Because I, I still find difficulty when I'm dealing with uh, factories in China where I'll say, oh, just print a prototype so that we can then move forward. And they they always seem hesitant to use mm. the, the printer. And I'm like, guys, come on. That's what it's there for. Um, <laughs> yeah, um, I
2: understand. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I think I think the thing with China is that they are moving up. I've been to a couple of these science fairs and the national, uh, was it the Nas- they have a national kind of science fair competition that was, was there as well. I was, I was surprised at just how I would thought they were just ripping off everyone's technology because that's my bias. Mm. And I was just really surprised at how innovative everything was and how there were things there that I had never seen anywhere else. And also, if you look at China, like they want Go, uh, Gomuk to be the largest aircraft producer in the world. right? Mm. Uh, the key to that is 3D printing, I think, or one of the keys. To that. They, they need to succeed in hypersonics because hypersonic missiles and stuff can down, uh, you know, they could down uh, U.S. carriers and, and U.S. ships and also U.S. air power. So the, the key to that is definitely 3D printing, because they can't make all these uh, in these, these really difficult high-temperature parts to go Mach five and beyond. Otherwise, and also the lightweight structures. And on top of that, they just want fighter jet aircraft that. That need to compete with with already, you know, many 3D printed parts on the, on the JSF and other aircraft. So for them, the the gain as a society of being also they want to be able to make aircraft engines. This is one of the two things they can't make. It's like aircraft engines and those ASML chip foundry things, right? Mm. This is the only two things they can't make. So you know for those the first things and probably the thing uh the first thing is all the key to that is just is, is 3d printing a metal right to me they'll get there eventually because they need to
2: yeah so. i i agree with all of that yeah I, I i wonder about your bias towards um making um you know weaponry and military um, yeah, right.
1: hardware um
2: <laughs> uh, i i kind of feel that uh, that you yeah, know there's plenty of uh, other applications uh, uh friendlier ones that they also would want to uh, uh, to work towards obviously transportation is critical in China and um, being able you know they've got incredible high-speed uh, rail networks for example um, which uh, are the envy of the world and yeah I'm sure that their additive is is definitely going to uh, uh, be a, a key element in, in producing those as well
1: uh, I'm biased because if I see an American researcher they're always working on like uh like the, uh, the defense related stuff well wow. it's all coming out of oakridge we spend a lot Durban. of money
0: on military yeah. related projects yeah. so
1: and then in europe in europe they're always like oh yeah we're making this button and then you can recycle the button and <laughs> it goes on your microwave <laughs> <laughs> although
0: i thought that um what deutsche Bahn is doing yeah, with uh, making that. replacement parts uh using printers is is very clever yeah. um things that have been sunsetted that they can't get tooling for anymore to uh, use metal printing for that and use uh, even plastic printing for that um, has some yeah. interesting applications. I,
2: I, I agree and that probably uh, is one of the reasons I guess why I think there's a lot of interesting stuff going on in Europe maybe there is yeah uh, you know, a little bit of a, a tendency to work towards how it can be used in uh, conventional for conventional purposes as well. Um, so I agree. Yeah, um, spare parts or I would say in maintenance rather than spare parts. I wonder about the spare parts industry. I don't think we're ready there yet. But um, uh, but look, uh, integrating with organizations like Deutsche Bahn and um, similar organize, uh, you know, railway or uh, aircraft companies and the like, um, it, it's definitely uh, a useful technology Uh, absolutely and and to me then it goes a little bit more towards well are we seeing a bit of a divergence in how these machines are are developing so some of them are definitely going along the route where they can be used for high volume uh, manufacturing in uh, a very limited range of materials but um, but very reliable and, and predictable processes to those that are still extremely versatile, for uh, to be able to provide a variety of solutions uh, for um, for light uh, maintenance type purposes.
1: Mm-hmm. I think it would be interesting. And um, one thing we don't know anything about, uh, and I'm extremely skeptical, of, so because I've seen so many false claims by these companies, is 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 concrete 3D printing. you've written about this as well. What are your feelings on on concrete 3D printing as a, as a part of our industry?
2: Uh, Well, I I, I got involved with concrete uh, 3D printing um, when I was, um, well, actually when I was in Australia, but um, connecting through to uh, some previous colleagues that I'd worked with uh, in Singapore. And um, there was a big center, there's the Singapore center for 3D printing. in uh, you know, uh, based around Nanyang Technological University, and they were using concrete printing as being uh, one of the uh, uh, areas that they would like to explore. Obviously, uh, it's a very highly urbanized um, uh, society in Singapore and therefore any capability to create uh, like modular c- uh, constructions uh, was a good idea. Um, But I I agree. Uh, I mean, I've had a great friend of mine, uh, Barok Koshnevis at um, uh, University of Contour
1: crafting, yeah.
2: Yeah, the the contour crafting process in in California. And um, he's been working on it for decades, hasn't he? And um, yeah, there are niches in my view. I don't see why or how it, it makes sense for production you know, mass production of of buildings. Um, I see, therefore, that it's more beneficial where you are wanting that versatility. You know, you're creating a very strange uh, concrete structure or, uh, you know, you you want um, very complicated facade work uh, on your building. Uh, That makes more sense to me. So no suburbs, yeah. <laughs> no no three D printed suburbs. I, I, I don't see it. I mean, Baroque is definitely worked. I mean, he worked with the was it the American Housing Association or whatever mm. uh, to sort of look at the idea of um, having a little factory where you uh, you make a, a house to order and then you put it on the back of a truck and, and wheel it off to the suburbs. Uh, that's that was that's definitely actually what
0: my grandfather process. used to do yeah
2: yeah but i don't suppose he used 3d printing he did did not he He used humans (laughs) and that's exactly the point
0: yeah they would they would do it all in sectional pieces he called it a he would the assembly line would move rather than the object on the assembly would move so on monday they'd lay the foundation and then the foundation guys moved to the next lot and
2: Mm -hmm. lay the
0: foundation and so forth and so on and he eventually got to where they'd had a factory and they would prefab most of the building and then ship it out and then just put it down on the foundation. And so he used yeah. to do suburbs back in the fifties
1: and sixties. Really? That yeah. was like a widely deployed thing then. Or oh like, it was uh... a huge
0: yeah. He did um at his height he did a third of Las Vegas. Of the houses, oh, <laughs> yeah, seriously. <laughs> so it's insane, it was, dude. It was insane. <laughs>
1: that's a that's a, that's a super cool story to kind of just like throw in there, <laughs> because that is how a lot of modern buildings are being done that way, right? They, they, it's just prefab, or a lot of it is.
0: But we could, I could see how it makes sense, like on Mars, for example, where you send yeah. a drone down with all the stuff, if, if it can churn up Martian soil and then produce something like concrete and then build the building before. A bunch of astronauts get there to explore.
2: Yeah, I, 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 but that's highly I look, specialized. So <laughs> yeah, it, it is. But it, it makes a, a perfect sense. I I totally agree. Um, and there are people definitely working on that now. NASA yeah. are definitely working on that. JPL, etc. The the whole idea of having a, a system. Uh, well, I mean, if you think about it, you know, when we um, when you write your textbooks you know, one of the first starting points is, uh, yeah, you look at the pyramids and you say, well, that's actually just layer-based manufacturing. You know? <laughs> <laughs> true. Yeah. Yeah? yeah, no, it's true. The post-processing is the,
1: yeah. It's, it's a chip away <laughs> at it, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, that's also very interesting because if we look at these 3D printed buildings, I'm more skeptical. They always come up with all these shapes, except the ones that you would ultimately want to print. And what you want to print is like a self-supporting arch or kind of like a beehive kind of shape you know like a, a round kind of uh, kind of shape and, and and like the wasp one i don't know if you saw that it came out like today or yesterday and and the wasp one the wasp houses are kind of made exactly like how you'd want a 3d printed building to be you know uh you know kind of like you can spiralize or you could just go up in one layer right and 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 yeah the other ones are just designed all over the place so i think that's a bit weird always
2: yeah. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, concrete is, uh, is not a layer based approach. I mean, it's yeah. because you've got the reinforcement in there and so, it, and it's a multi-material system. Um, and uh, yeah, the, you're, you're building a, a structure that you want very, very high uh, compressive modulus. You want uh, it, it to be very supportive of, of, of very heavy loads. It's a bit simplistic to say that it's, yeah, you 3D print houses. I mean, <laughs> you put guttering, you put electrical stuff in there. What, what, you know, house is a very complex system, really, isn't it? Yeah.
0: No, I mean, it's the same way we initially when 3D printing became super poppy, or, you know, in that sense, everyone thought you could like print electronics, so to speak, like, oh, just print your phone. And they forget that the pcb and all that stuff isn't printed uh currently it's all done
1: separately Uh, and is there anything that that you're particularly excited about that we didn't touch on like a material or an application you think oh that's really cool but nobody's talking about it or
2: well you you, i mean you're actually starting to uh, go into that region i suppose is the capability to create um very complex systems um where 3d printing is kind of part of the process, but not the entire process. So embedding electronics, you know, there's, um, uh, th- there's some great work uh, going on uh, in those uh, areas. You know, you've got Eric McDonald and, and the like uh, looking at uh, you know, putting sensors and, mm-hmm. uh, into 3D printed structures. Um, you've got these mechanistic, uh, what, we, what we're labeling as what, 4D printing, et cetera. These are, it's exciting times, you know, every time you think that you've, um, you, you, you see that we're getting to somewhere, you can see uh, an, another uh, another opportunity on the horizon. Um, so, uh, yeah, it's been nice to sort of follow this through over this last sort of 20 odd years. Um, but yeah, I don't see it, it slowing down, really. I think, you know, what we'll see is more and more of these, uh, the, these exciting new developments
1: all right thank you so much ian uh that was uh, ian gibson uh from uh, the university of tenta and the foreign offer project center at the university of tenta thank you so much for joining us uh, today ian
2: it's been a pleasure thank you very much
1: and uh yeah max uh, thanks uh, for your uh, participation as well today
2: always fun thanks for having me joris all right
1: and thank you for listening Uh, my name is joris peels and this is the 3d pod thank you very much
2: You've been listening to the 3D Pod. For more information on what you just heard or to subscribe, visit www.3dprint.com or follow us at 3dprint underscore com.